Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. After back-to-back relegation battles, Everton supporters would have been forgiven for thinking it couldn't get any worse this summer. In towards Kalajic! Wolves in front! Sean Dyche's team have lost all three of their opening Premier League games without scoring a single goal. And I'm afraid that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's dig into this. I'm Ayo Akimolere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. a sign of a club in crisis with a leadership so unpopular the entire executive board was warned to stay away from today's game. We took over what they call a broken club. It's not broken. That is cracks, but it's not broken. We've shown that. We've shown the fighting spirit that you need. But equally, I've just told the players, we shouldn't be in this state. So we've got to learn from that. Next season's going to be a big season. All right, our guest for this one, our Everton reporter, Patrick Boyland, and our senior football news reporter, Matt Slater. Paddy, let's start with you. Are we really talking about this season's first crisis club? What, just three weeks into the brand new Premier League campaign? I was saying to somebody the other day that it feels like the last two and a bit seasons have all kind of merged into one. All kind of crisis, relegation battles, lack of money. I mean, they are distinct in some ways. There are different managers operating in these different seasons, but a lot of the issues span the whole three-year period. Sean Dice was actually asked about this the other day. He was asked after the, the second game in advance of the third game whether Everton are a crisis club. And his answer was that they're not, that this is really early in the season and things can turn around. And to be fair, I kind of get his point. There's 35 games left here to play and there's a lot of time to go to to change what's been a pretty poor start to the season. But I think looking at the club as a whole, not just the on-the-pitch stuff, and they've started badly, there is a general sense of overall turbulence that I think affects everything. It affects the mindset of supporters. I don't think it can be an easy place to play football always if you're, if you're an Everton player. There's a general sense of unrest and unease at what has been a, a shambolic couple of years. Yeah, Matt... 
it can still be turned around. But for that, you need money, you need players, and you need, you know, a, a, a solid infrastructure. I was just saying before we started the podcast that, you know, I was part of a group of journalists who were rolled out to Liverpool last year to look at the plans for this grand new stadium, right? Lovely little boat trip across the River Mersey. Fans can really get a sense of what Liverpool looks like. But financially, uh, the club's going through some pretty tricky times right now. It is, and, it, and this has been a this has been going on for a while. So you know, just explain to everybody that might not be following Everton as closely as, as Patrick. So Farhad Mashuri bought the club in 2016. He's a British Iranian businessman. He'd previously been a minority investor with his business partner Alicia Usmanov at Arsenal. And since 2016, uh, he initially bought about half the club, and then up to about I think it's about 93, 94 percent. I can't remember where he's actually at, but I think it's 94. So. Since then, so over these seven years, he's he's down about 750 million quid. Now you can argue, well, what's he what's he got to show for that? Apart from lots of heartache and and you know, some thrilling, thrilling um survivals at the end of at the end of seasons. I suppose that was probably something. He's got a kind of half-built stadium, which is going to be probably more than half-built, now I'm being a bit unfair, but an unfinished stadium, which is going to be magnificent, but it's not finished, it's not fully paid for. And, and that's about it. Everton were already running too hot. They were running at a loss. And Patrick's the expert here. They made some bad decisions in the transfer market, bad decisions around managers, constantly having to replace that as well. It was very expensive. So you had a sort of failing football project. You could argue this has been going on for sort of 20, 30, 40 years. But if we just focus on machinery, so we have a failing football project where chopping and changing between ideas, perhaps got too many voices in his ears at, at times, too many advisors, and then other times not enough. You know, it's never one problem with Everton, I don't think. And then we have this very specific issue, this very acute issue that, that, that started about 18 months ago. And, and that is where we get into geopolitics. It's when Russia invaded Ukraine. Because at that moment, the Mashiri project at Everton, which was already, I would say, going wrong, became a crisis because he lost access to Usmanov's money. Alicia Usmanov was placed on the sanctions list. He's an Uzbek-born billionaire and oligarch with very close ties to the Kremlin. Usmanov-linked companies have been providing Everton with a number of pretty profitable, pretty lucrative sponsorships, Finch Farm, Shirt, Slave, all that sort of stuff. But crucially, they were also going to provide the naming rights partner, and already paid a little bit up front, it's quite unusual, but anyway, they were going to be the naming rights partner of the stadium, and that was going to be part of the funding solution there. That all goes overnight. So I should probably stop there because there's a bit to unpick. But at that moment, a club that was already losing money, that was already making bad decisions, they lost their friendliest banker. And since then, Mashiri has had a problem, basically a cash flow problem. He's been looking for help to finish the stadium and to fund the club going forward. Talk about Sean Dyche asking for new players or wanting new players, that there's no money in the bank. You look at this stadium that's already semi-built. If Everton get relegated, this just is another hammer of a blow into a team that, let's face it, are one of the forefathers of Premier League football. Yeah, well, Fahad Mashiri did an interview. It was it was in winter, probably January, February time with the club's fan advisory board. And he spoke about an existential issue. And that existential issue, I think, hopefully not putting words into his mouth, was the potential relegation of the club mm. to the championship and more or less the overnight reduction in revenue. Obviously, we all know that clubs are getting a sizable amount of their revenue from TV rights deals. 
if you go down to the championship, you get parachute payments, but I think that's only about 60% at last count of what you would expect if you, you were a full Premier League member. So for a loss-making club, as Matt's already pointed out, to then incur that cost at a point where they were building a new stadium and still trying to fund the new stadium, that would have been a pretty substantial issue. Thankfully, in Everton's case, they survived half an hour before the end. Abdullah Decore scored against Bournemouth, so they survived by the skin of their teeth. But everybody around Everton says stuff like, never again, this can never happen again. It's already happened two years on the bounce. And now we're into a further season where they've lost their opening three fixtures at a historically bad start to the season. And when we talk about the crisis at the club or the issues at the club, everything feeds into everything else, doesn't it? Because if if Everton aren't able to fully fund the stadium at the moment or they they have kind of FFP issues, that all has a knock-on effect in terms of recruitment and what they're able to do. And this is, I I would argue that the, the football side of Everton's operation, particularly on the pitch, has now been underfunded for probably about three years since Rafa Benitez was in charge. Benitez, for all his foibles, for all his associations with Liverpool, he had 1.7 million to spend in the in the only window he was in in charge. And this summer, they've made four signings at the time of recording. Hopefully, a fifth on on the way soon. Two of those are loans in Arno Danjuma and Jack Harrison, and the other is a, a free transfer in in Ashley Young. So money is money has been tight. It's impacted the recruitment. And what recruitment have had to do is they've had to go to clubs and say, we'll pay you, let's say for argument's sake, 25 million for this player. But it will be structured over the whole course of the deal and the payments are back-ended. So we're not giving you lots of money up front. This is, this is how tight it's got. And as I say, the issues on the financial side impact what they're able to do on the football side too. You look at these incredible assets, these incredible business structures, and you're asking yourself, how have you got to this point where you're not able to run <laughs> a, a, a football club? A, a, you know, for, for mm. profit, it's this thought that behind every football club lies these incredible geniuses who've thought about what they're buying into, the way in which they're going to navigate this new landscape. And here we are with one of the greatest historical clubs in the Premier League potentially looking down the line at relegation because it's been badly mismanaged. Of course, no one could help what happened with, with the Russia-Ukraine situation, but it, it goes on way before that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a few things to say there. One, um, yes, a lot of these people are very, very bright and they are geniuses in uh, certain parts of their lives, but doesn't mean that they're brilliant at running professional sports teams. And this this is an old story. I mean, we could go we could go through the lead table, and I could probably sort of point out, you know, fifty cases where clever business person becomes semi deranged fantasy football lunatic, <laughs> throwing money around, chasing losses, listening to fans too much, listening to people like you and I too much, and and just you know, all business sense gets left in the car park. Now, this is an old story. Mm. The other thing to say more generally is that football clubs don't really make money. Most Premier League clubs pre-COVID were washing their own face, as as business people say. You know, they were they were the, the better ones were making very small profits or you know a small loss, small profits, small. So they were kind of sustainable. COVID comes along and, and it's clearly a big shock to the system. So you had Everton spending too much, trying to sort of I think close that gap to the big six, which is really really hard. You know, if if that that's a sort of compounding problem. And this is one of the stories, I think, of the last 20 years. The Premier League does distribute its money 
relatively fairly, certainly more fairly than any other major league in, in sort of global football, to be honest. But that repeated access to UEFA money, particularly via the Champions League, has given those, that's why they're the big six. It's as simple as that, right? We can all make arguments about whether Everton are bigger than, than Newcastle or Villa or where you do your pecking order. But over the last 20 years, a very clear gap has emerged. And the only way we were to bridge that gap was with state-type wealth. So Man City did it, Chelsea did it, via Abramovich, and we shall see if Newcastle can do it. For anybody else, it's really hard because it's not just making it once, you've got to make it a few times. You make it a few times and suddenly it starts to you know, stick and become real. Then it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling, virtuous cycle. The sponsors like it. You see, know, commercial revenue grows. Everton had moments, but they couldn't make it stick. Mashiri comes along and he starts chasing it and it starts to go wrong. And then I think the bit that's sort of unique to Everton, and this is, I suppose, bad timing. It is bad timing. There's another way to put it, really, mm. is the stadium. Mm. The stadium was mm. a, a good idea. Goodison Park is holding us back. It's not even an average stadium. I know it's a wonderful stadium, rich, lovely, great, romantic. I love that. You do. know, you see all those plaques but on the wall. Of it's course lovely. we do. Nice. But, but where Premier League clubs in particular make their money now on match day is with the Prawn Sandwich Brigade. And Everton just don't have the space for that. They don't have enough boxes. They don't have enough capacity. You want... You want those guys to come to your ground two hours before and stay an hour after. And you want all of that lot to then go to the club shop. And you want all of that lot to bring their business partners the following week and blah, 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 blah. But that's where Everton have been losing for a long time. So the stadium was a reason that was a good idea. A number of things have gone wrong timing-wise and have left Everton, frankly, in a hole. They are in a hole. And you know, if, if Everton fans just get one thing from this, the financial position is precarious. It's, it's the most precarious for a Premier League team, for a top flight team since Portsmouth. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'll be interested to get your, your perspective on this, Patrick, in terms of this idea of Goodison Park holding Everton back. But not just Goodison Park, you get a sense from an outsider's perspective that this is a club that's semi-held back by heritage versus modernity, right? Probably no one bigger than the chairman when it comes to heritage. You know, uh, I guess a minority stakeholder with a much louder voice in the proceedings of the club. Yeah, so Bill Kenwright, the chairman, owns, I think it's 1.4% of, <laughs> of the, the, the entirety of the shares. Five Mashiri's up at 94 
But because of his position on the club's board of directors and his privileged position as chairman, obviously he does have a substantial say. I would say in the kind of the everyday running of Everton, Mashiri is based abroad for for a lot of the time and kind of swoops in here or there with with money or a ridiculous transfer suggestion, potentially depending on who he's listening to. But day to day, I think Everton, the Liverpool operation has been run by Bill Kenwright and, and the recently departed CEO, Denise Barrett-Baxendale. Three board members left this summer. So Barrett-Baxendale, the CEO, Grant Ingalls, the finance director, and club legend Graham Sharp, who had, a, I would say, a ceremonial position on the board, mm. if you will. But crucially, Ken Wright remained in situ. So I think this idea of a club that's moving towards something else and trying to morph and become something different, that doesn't fully catch light. And I think that's the problem Everton have got. I think Everton fans now... They've seen the weight of evidence over a, a decent period of time. They've seen the trajectory the club was heading in before they tried to take evasive action. And they're looking for signs that something will change. But when the key pillars remain the same, they're less inclined to believe it. it, it it's coming. There have been Evertonians protesting in, in, in certain numbers against Bill Kenwright and his, and his position at Everton for most of that period, for four decades. Their voices are louder now because of what's happening on the pitch and others will have joined. But I guess if you were to survey the whole fan base and ask them, are you happy with how Everton are going right now as an institution, as a club, you you get a lot of people telling you that they're not. So I think there's just a feeling something needs to change and change soon. Well, yes, but I mean, we should probably um, just remind everybody, you know, why it's not just that Everton have lost three games, right? There's a bit more going on of late that, that have, I think, brought Everton to the forefront of everyone's minds. And that's the story we broke last week. But if I if I sort of finish that, I guess my first answer about the problem that Mashiri found himself in at 18 months ago. So what we've had since then, and he hasn't always admitted this, but I think it's become pretty clear from actions or lack of action, um, that this is what's been going on. He's been looking to sell at least a stake in the business and or find a partner a long-term partner to fund that stadium. We had a story last summer where Everton were in talks with this Polish-born American property developer called Kaminsky. That came to nothing. He was brought to the table by former Chelsea Man United director Peter Kenyon. There were sort of two goes at that. Just didn't happen. Kaminsky was last heard of about two months ago failing to buy Belgian side Kortrick because he didn't have enough money. That was a colossal waste of time. By the beginning of this year, it looked like Mashiri's attempts to find external help had narrowed. He was looking for kind of North American money. And we had two groups. One is this New York-based sports investment fund called MSP Capital, Sports Capital. Then the other lot were 777 partners who are based in Miami. Less is known about them. They they are, you know, they're, they're relatively newcomers, although they uh, have made a lot of waves. They've been looking for an English club. They've been looking for a Premier League club. So 777, MSP, for the first bit of the year. MSP, by May, looks like it's the option. And they were going to invest money, 150 million quid, in finishing the stadium. And that money was then going to unlock more money that was going to come via JP Morgan and a Japanese bank. Big long-term loan. That's how Tottenham did their stadium. It's how anyone would want to do their stadium. Great big long-term low interest. And then they were going to get 25% of the share, also some cash flow for Everton. And they were going to get two seats on the board. 
So you're going to get new energy, access to North American money, North American know-how, and possibly also sort of a, a route map to what we, where we're going post-Mashiri. That deal collapsed. That deal collapsed because Everton's exist, biggest existing creditor, who are this sort of slightly opaque lender called Rights and Media Funding based in Cheshire, Everton borrow about 200 million from them. And they objected to this other new lots coming in and potentially diluting their security. And they also, I think, worried that the amount of money they were bringing to the table wasn't enough. All Everton have been left with is, a, is another loan, which is still 260 million pounds short, by the way, of funding. So more debt. And then you start to wonder, well, what's left? What is Everton and this stadium actually worth once you sort of strip away the debt? A pound? 10 million? 50 million? Bear in mind, it's a distressed sale. You know, we know that Mashiri is in trouble. This is the situation Everton are in. What, what are they worth? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Gets a second chance. That's much better. Punched away by Joseph Sark. And Wolves hold on again. And at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to score goals. And it's not just everyone talks about strikes. Of course, that's a big part of their role. But the team, you know, we're creating chances and we can't quite find that goal. In by Garner. Sensational stop by Joseph Sark. Once again, arguably, their keeper's man of the match, but we shouldn't be making their keeper's man of the match. We should be, we should be putting the, the chances in. Towards Kalajic. Wolves in front. Just four minutes remaining. Sasa Kalajic with his first Wolves goal. Paddy, what, what does this mean then for Sean Dyche and recruitment plans this summer? The main thing it's meant is that the club's recruitment team have looked at loans and free agents and structured deals that are backloaded so that the bulk of the payments are made later into those deals. They've obviously brought in four players, hopefully soon five at the time of writing with the with the addition of Udinese striker Beto. And I would argue in some cases they've 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 wheeled and dealed quite effectively. I think Jack Harrison, for example, from Leeds isn't a stupid pickup on loan, suits the way Dyche is looking to play with the kind of direct wide players. Arno Danjuma, a potential diamond in the rough after a pretty successful first season at Villarreal. He's, he's fallen off, but he could still do something. So I actually think given the limitations, some of the business has been quite good, but we just have to acknowledge that the limitations have been and are still there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any easy solution here. I don't think it's like things are... Dr- going to dramatically change overnight in the January window or in the summer window. This is Everton as they are now. And it places great emphasis on 
the director of football, Kevin Thelwell, the recruitment team, and also Sean Dice, the manager, to find, pull rabbits out of the hat, to, to find deals that, that kind of keep the club afloat, keep the side afloat. So I, I, I don't think anything will change for the, for, the, for the foreseeable. The other thing to point out here is that because of the losses and because of the FFP situation, they are regularly cashing in on their best assets on the pitch. So Anthony Gordon left for Newcastle in in January. I think that was 40 million up front with an additional 5 million added on. They've made further sales this summer. Last summer, they sold Richarlison to Tottenham to ease an FFP concern. Add in all that money and you're looking at significantly over 120 million in the last 12 months through sales. So you've got a financial situation that's impacting everything. And the resources that are coming into the club are purely going to service the needs of stadium, of FFP, of everything else. So that, that's why you get an underfunded squad. The evidence so far, once they're all on the pitch, I, I think it might work out. But, but let's see that the first three games have not been have not been good. Well, let's get some positivity. We are expecting striker Beto to complete his transfer to Everton from Udinese in Serie A today. And we also asked our Italian football writer, James Horncastle, if he can solve their problems in front of goal and provide real competition for the perennially injured Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I'm not sure that Dominic Calvert-Lewin isn't one of those. Maybe not quite like, he's quite accepting of being injured rather than pushing back and saying, I'll overcome this adversity. What Sean Dyche is trying to do is get a tune out of this kid because he knows that he's a, he ain't got anything else. Aslan al limite, palla tagliata, esce Musso anticipato! Sulla prima palla da Beto, che esulta, 1-1 di Nese! Beto. Must say He's been one of the most uh, fun players to watch and just fun stories to follow over the last couple of years uh, since Udinese signed him from Portimonense uh, uh, in Portugal. In part because he kind of symbolizes this mini renaissance at Udinese. You know, Udinese were the original top scouters. Uh, they were the guys who would, uh, you know, set up all these uh, satellite decoders in their stadium, uh, watch games from all over the world and have Scout, the scouting platform before Scout even existed. And then everyone caught up and even when they had uh, Granada and Watford, uh, and they were the sort of first multi-club operation. Uh, Red Bull went and copied them and basically had much more budget. And, you know, it's why they're bigger. But um, when they signed Beto two years ago, it's like, ha, yes, great. Udinese are back. Uh, they're finding players, these uncut gems. You know, Beto was a guy who used to work in KFC. Uh, and so his rise has been phenomenal. He made a really good impact in his first season in Italy. He got into double figures, uh, which you know is, is still difficult to do. And yeah, he is, I think, the quickest player in Serie A. If he's not the quickest, he's right up there with Victorzi men, Kevin Lasagna <laughs> as well, his former teammate. But yeah, he certainly gave Udinese this threat, you know, because you might not be able to expect Udinese to retain possession by high up the pitch. And when they, whenever they were sucked into their own penalty area and needed an outlet, you know, that was better. He's rapid. So I'm pleased for him. I mean, it's a lot of money. You know, he's sort of still in his, his mid-20s. And as I said, double figures. We're not talking 
top scorer. We're not talking Thierry Mobile, Aussie men, or you know, even Lukaku numbers from a couple of years ago, but certainly showed a lot of potential, scored goals on a team that doesn't really create a lot, to be honest. But yeah, excited to see him in the Premier League. Fingers crossed Everton have got a star man on their hands. Uh, a Paddy, um, oh, some pretty big injuries at the moment. It won't be McNeil, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who always seems to be injured. Um, Harrison as well. I mean, international break on its way. Some much needed reprieve for, for Everton to regroup and rethink about how they come out of this. But um, it, it, it's a real tricky time for, for, for a team in terms of not winning your first few games. And you, you'd like to think, you know... The injuries as well could add a much further blow to to a team that's probably running quite low on confidence at this moment in time. Well, this is it. I think given everything we've spoken about, the one thing the club needs right now is is just a bit of short-term respite. The long-term predicament remains, and even the mid-term predicament remains. But three points on the pitch and pulling clear of the relegation zone is obviously massive. And the sooner that comes, the better. I think the frustration is that the the first three games have seen Everton create an abundance of chances. They really should be putting the ball in the net, given what they've done in the final third, but they just haven't been able to to do so. And that's meant that they've squandered really advantageous positions in both of the home games and, and lost all of those games. So part of the issue for Dyche has been, I think, that when you look at the injuries... They've not really have had a serviceable attack. Dominic Calvert-Lewin has been injured, as you pointed out. Jack Harrison isn't ready because he had a hip injury at Leeds that was he was recovering from over the summer. Dwight McNeil was clogged by Stoke in the final preseason game, which is a familiar story, but he was the, the top scorer last season. So that's another substantial blow. And in their absence, Everton have had to plug others into gaps sometimes out of position. You look at the team that started against Wolves on, on Saturday and you had a young, promising, but untested left winger in Lewis Dobbin, who's come from the club's academy. You had James Garner, who was a central midfielder playing on the right wing. And you had Arno Danjuma, who's not really a central striker, playing up front in the central striker role. So all these pieces that should be in different positions. And we don't even know if they really yet fit in this squad. But that's what they're having to do because of the injury situation. The frustration for Everton fans is you look at the chances that they created, even with this patchwork side. And if they'd had even some configuration of McNeil, Harrison, Iwobi, Calvert-Lewin, they'd probably be sitting here with four or five points. And, and I think everything would look a, a little bit rosier. What it does mean is that you look at the game on, on Saturday. They've got Sheffield United away before the break. They really need to pick up some points there just to just alleviate this stress, this 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 sense of negativity that just pervading at the moment. They they need a result from somewhere. So that that's got to be the aim. Yeah, I don't want to be the bearer of any more bad news, but I think it's Arsenal and Brentford after that as well. So um it is. could be an interesting one for 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 Everton. Uh, just a quick one on this one, Matt. Um we've talked about um Beto coming in and also Chamiti coming in um, this summer. What kind of impact might this have on the independent commission on the 25th of October regards an alleged breach of Premier League financial fair play rules? Uh, There's there's no real impact on that case. So Everton are basically under special measures at the moment and have been for a bit. Um, They almost need to ask. They just need to run everything by the Premier League. I think we can assume that that's what they've been doing. And Paddy's already talked about the amount of money they brought in from player sales. So I, I I would 
you know, park that concern for a bit. The independent um, commission cases around 21-22, that season, when um, if Everton didn't breach the Premier League's financial fair play rules, they got very, 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 very close. Look, we kind of know they did breach the number, right? They bust the number by a mile, right? Because we know that you can lose 105 million over a rolling three-year period, and we can see that they've lost considerably more than that, almost three times as much. Now, as ever with these FFP um, considerations, there are things you can deduct. So women's team, anything you're spending on infrastructure. So that's quite important in Everton's case, right? Because they're putting a stadium. Community work, Everton do a lot of that. The academy, player development. Again, Everton have a good academy, you know, certainly a Premier League standard one anyway. So there are some things you that, that take that number down. And then this is where the case will be argued. COVID is in the middle of that. Already, both UEFA and Premier League and the EFL, anyone that has a financial fair play regime has made some concessions for, for COVID. One, they let you put the two COVID-affected seasons together and effectively okay. average them out. So instead of, let's say, a three-year period, we're talking about a four-year period with the two COVID seasons, the, the one that was nearly all behind closed doors and the one that was just the end of the season behind closed doors, if you know what I mean. So you put those two together and sort of average them out. And then, though they've never really specified how, are going to take a kind of generous look at each club saying, well, look, you know, COVID hits us in this way, right? We've got a big stadium, Man United. I'm just picking them, for example. Their match day revenue super significant here. But Bournemouth, with their smaller stadium, couldn't make quite the same argument. Bournemouth might, I'm just picking, you know, two extremes here. Bournemouth might be able to say, however, you know, we depend on player trading. They don't really, but because I've chosen a bad example. Mm. Everton, Everton definitely have made this argument. At the point where we needed to sell players to meet our FFP number, COVID destroyed the transfer market, destroyed the values of our players. So we were unable to trade our way out. So Everton, in their accounts for the crucial seasons, put in a massive COVID hit, if you like, a COVID discount, way bigger than any other club. That is where that case will be won and lost. Everton claiming this huge, I wouldn't say unique, because they all got hit, but this very, very large COVID impact, which we'll see if that argument is successful or not. Whew, let's leave it there. <laughs> Honestly, Matt, Patrick, really appreciate your time. And remember, you can read more from both of them on The Athletic and keep right up to date with the last week of the transfer window as well. Sign up today for a special limited time offer of just £1 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Thank you all so much for listening. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10 
$10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.